Hello, and welcome to Disputed, a new Norton Rose Fulbright podcast. Join us as we dive into the trends, issues, and opportunities across Canada's legal landscape. Ailsa, this is our first episode, so maybe we should start off by introducing ourselves in the podcast. Do you want to go first? Sure. So my name's Ailsa Bloomer. I'm a commercial litigation associate based in Calgary, and my practice is quite broad. It covers general commercial disputes, class actions, insurance coverage disputes, and some Indigenous law matters. I'm originally from London, UK, where I began my career with another leading firm, and I practiced insurance litigation and worked on a number of arbitration and EU regulatory matters before moving to Canada as a foreign qualified lawyer and joining Norton Rose Fulbright in 2018, and was finally called to the Alberta Bar in 2020. And I'm Andrew McComb. I'm a litigation partner in Norton Rose Fulbright's Toronto office. My practice focuses on complex commercial and securities litigation, as well as disputes in the competition, consumer protection, and fraud spaces, among other things. I work with a broad range of clients, but most often with clients in the tech sector or financial institutions, and I often work with companies in energy and transport as well. I'm also a member of Norton Rose Fulbright's Special Situations team, which I think you'll hear about in at least a couple of future episodes which includes Canada's leading shareholder activism practice. I feel like both our bios are just wordy ways of saying that we're in the business of solving problems. Yeah, I think that's right. And we're also in the business of advocacy. Elsa, let me ask you this. Why did you want to start this podcast? Well, first of all, I love the format. I'm a big fan of podcasts as a means of staying in tune with what's going on in the world and gathering information, not just at a high level. I think podcasts, you know, they offer a way to take a listener from the basic concepts, but into a meaningful detail in quite a short period of time. Yeah, I think that's so right. When I'm listening to podcasts, I'm usually commuting or walking the dog or doing something that doesn't fully occupy my mind. So it's great to have a means to learn and gather information while I'm on the go. Yeah, I think that there's also something that's about overhearing people having a conversation <laughs> that just like pretend like peeks into our tendency to eavesdrop. And, you know, even even if that conversation is about the law. Um, but seriously, I think a, a podcast presents a really useful opportunity to just engage with lawyers across Norton Rose Fulbright's national and international networks, learn about legal issues and also learn how they relate to changes across key industries. Elsa, you said useful. I I think that's really the key. Our focus is on practical knowledge and updates on relevant legal areas. It's sort of what you need to know. What's the state of the law in the area? How do we get there? Where are we going? Yeah, and to hear it from lawyers and professionals that are immersed in those industries and that are perfectly placed to tell our listeners what's what. So that's disputed in a nutshell. To give you a sense of what you can expect in our early episodes, today we're going to discuss fairness opinions in M&A and related litigation. Next week, as October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we will release three episodes on relevant topics like ransomware and litigating a cyber breach. We also have upcoming episodes on proxy fights, climate change disputes, parent company liability for international human rights abuses, as well as some insolvency, insurance, and Indigenous matters. So our content is going to be broad, but it's designed to identify key dispute-related trends across Canada's common law landscape. We hope you enjoyed the podcast at least as much as we've enjoyed putting it together for you. If you want to get in touch to get more information, give us feedback or suggest future episodes to cover, 
You can reach us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And you can subscribe to Disputed through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here is episode one, Fairness Opinions with Steve Lytle, QC. If you have ever been involved in a public company transaction, whether that's a share exchange, acquisition or reorganisation, well, then you've probably heard of a fairness opinion. These are a common feature of board endorsed transactions and they're typically cited in a company's disclosure, such as a circular seeking shareholder approval of a transaction. Fairness opinions are generally short form, summarizing the information considered by the financial advisor with the conclusion on whether the proposed transaction is fair from a financial perspective to the company's shareholders. Sounds pretty uncontroversial. So why are we talking about them now? So here's the point. The courts have started to take a closer look at what is in these fairness opinions, particularly when shareholders disagree with the board's proposed transaction. It started in 2008 with the Supreme Court of Canada decision, BCE, and that briefly acknowledged that a fairness opinion could be one of many indications that a transaction is fair to shareholders. But the Supreme Court did not actually say what a fairness opinion should contain. And since then, courts in Ontario, the Yukon and BC have scrutinised these documents. And because of these decisions, directors, shareholders and financial advisors are facing a series of questions and uncertainties, like should these documents be treated the same way as expert evidence in litigation? Is it okay for financial advisors to charge success fees for the opinions? And ultimately, how much comfort should a fairness opinion give directors that they've satisfied their fiduciary duties? To answer these questions, we spoke with Steve Lytle, QC. Steve is a senior partner in our Calgary office. Over the past 30 years, Steve has represented clients across Canada in complex securities and M&A litigation, director's liability cases, class actions, and internal investigations. He has been involved in hundreds of plans of arrangement where issues with fairness opinions most commonly arise. Steve recently published a paper on this topic, a link to which is in this episode's description. Steve, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Steve, maybe I'll start off at a high level. Can you tell us what is a fairness opinion? So the fairness opinion that we'll be talking about in the Canadian context is generally a short form opinion prepared by financial advisors, in my experience, most commonly investment bankers, in relation to a proposed transaction, um, which is given to a company board or special committee in, in connection with a proposed transaction. So to pick up where you started there, you said a short form opinion, as opposed to what? Well, it's short form in terms of the work done by the financial advisors, for sure. Usually it'll be very conclusory saying, you know, we've looked at the transaction and in our opinion, it's fair from a financial perspective to the shareholders of the company. And then there'll be a long list of things they reviewed, but what they don't disclose is their, their analysis, their valuation methodology, et cetera. How the sausage is made. Exactly. And so what are they used for primarily? Well, in the Canadian context, again, they're generally um, um, relied upon by boards of directors or special committees as part of the indicia of the process which they've undertaken in connection with assessing a transaction. 
Now they may play many other roles at the same time. For example, uh, advising as to the structure of the process, canvassing potential purchasers, um, and assessing uh, different competing bids that come in. The financial, um, the sort of fairness opinion will be one aspect of their work. And can you just expand on that? What do you mean by indicia of the process? Well, in, in, in Canada, a company's uh, directors owe a fiduciary duty, which requires them to act in the best interest of the corporation. And in Canada, that's not linked to just the short term, you know, the next quarter or the two quarters away. It's this long-term profit maximization or long-term interests. Um, and, and directors uh, have a defense when their judgment is challenged based on the so-called business judgment rule. But to have the benefit of that rule, they have to show that they've undertaken a proper and thorough process. And that requires them to do all kinds of things. It's by no means easy being a director, but one of the things um, that is considered a, an indicia of the fairness, or if you prefer an indicator of fairness, is the fact that they have consulted with financial advisors, expert in the area, to get their opinion on the merits of their proposed course. Okay, so fairness opinions grew out of the context of directors' fiduciary duties. Uh, they give the board some additional comfort in terms of recommending a proposed course of action to shareholders. What types of action could that include? It could be a reorganization, it could be an acquisition of another company, and it could be selling the company to somebody else or selling assets of the company. It could be all kinds of things. And, and what they'll do, boards frequently, especially the larger the company and the more complex the situation, is to get some very expert advice on the merits of the transaction and especially, um, and especially the alternatives available so they can compare that to the merits of the transaction in question. Mm-hmm. And so where do they most commonly come up? Sure. That's certainly where I most often see fairness opinions arises in the context of a plan of arrangement. And a plan of arrangement can be a corporate transaction of many kinds. It just can't be one that's a pure takeover. It's very flexible and the definition is very easily met. Um, so, for example, one company may acquire another company by a share exchange. Um, and um, it, what the arrangement requires is that um, you need court approval. And the court will look to the fairness of the transaction. I'm sure we'll be coming to how fairness opinions fall and or play into that. And you've been involved in hundreds of these plans of arrangement. And as you say, this is a where a court sanctions a proposed transaction under the company's applicable statute, whether that's the CBCA or its provincial territorial equivalent. These involve hearings in court, but they're not your classic litigation. So can you Talk a bit more about the context of a plan of arrangement and where the fairness opinions fit in. In the context of a plan of arrangement, there are two, usually two uh, court hearings. One is uh, um, an application for what we call an, or a motion for an interim order. And that's an order where the court um, just looks at the proposed arrangement from a very superficial level. I don't mean that critical, from a high level. And they, they um, set the terms by which shareholders or other stakeholders will have an opportunity to vote, where the vote will be, and other things such as whether shareholders will have a right of dissent and, and provision for a final hearing to, at which the um, fairness of the transaction will be assessed by the court. And for example, rights of interested parties, stakeholders to appear to oppose if they so desire. So that first hearing is focused on process and mechanics. Exactly. And the final hearing is focused on really the merits and the, the fairness and the substance of the transaction, right? Absolutely. 
And the first hearing uh, will be what we call, sorry to use Latin again, also, but uh, ex parte, without notice to anybody. So you're not, even though it's litigation in a sense, you're not serving anybody, you're not, it's not adverse to anybody. Usually it's just, because I've done a couple of these as well, usually it's just a target counsel, acquire counsel, usually in chambers with the judge talking about fairness from the perspective of making sure votes are going to get counted, making sure people have adequate notice of a meeting and how everything's going to work to, you know, to, to make sure that when you come back for that final hearing, the court can be satisfied that it can make a decision on the fairness and the reasonableness yeah. of the transaction. And at that, at that stage, you know, uh, experienced judges may ask about who's going, for example, who's going to get to vote. You know, there may be option holders, warrant holders, and other stakeholders as well as shareholders. So they want to see that everybody, when when you come back, they have reliable data in terms of the support. So it's common in my experience when there's option holders whose options are not underwater, the judge will ask for a separate tabulation of their votes. So in my view, the ex party hearing is very much just procedural, um, leaving uh, the powder dry of all parties to come back and argue about things like whether the fairness opinion was adequate. And sometimes you see judges getting into those questions about the substance. And usually the best deflection for counsel is to say, well, that's really a question for the final order hearing on, on fairness and reasonableness and probably not something for today. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to the final hearing then, what test will the court apply to determine whether the plan of arrangement should be approved? Yeah, the, 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 the catchphrase is fair and reasonable to the, you know, to the people whose legal rights are being arranged or compromised or affected. Um, and that test is set out you know, in the famous decision, BCE, our Supreme Court of Canada. Okay. One I indication of fairness um, will be the existence of a fairness opinion, but the the key, in my experience, the key indicia indicator is the level of shareholder support. BCE is the 2008 Supreme Court of Canada case on the nature of directors' duties and this principle of fairness. This is the leading authority on directors' fiduciary duties and plans of arrangement. So can you talk us through that decision? So at a high level, BC involved a, le a leverage buyout, um, which was going to benefit its shareholders. Um, and it was a, an arrangement. Um, uh, BCE had debenture holders that had, you know, multi hundreds and hundreds of page long debenture, forms of debentures with extensive terms. And they opposed because it was going to downgrade the, uh, the rating of the company in the end and would affect the value of their debentures. Um, so they opposed the approval of the arrangement on the basis of fairness, and they also in parallel sued for oppression, which you often see in a party challenging an arrangement. And so what happened? In the end of the day, well, the court provided uh, some very helpful guidance on what, what is fair and you know, the nature of arrangements and then the test for oppression. At the end of the day, in, in the most simple terms, the court said to the debenture holders, your reasonable expectations, and that's a magic phrase in the oppression world when stakeholders sue for oppression, but your reasonable expectations were codified in the terms of your debentures. And the terms of your debentures did not block this transaction, so you're out of luck. You could have, you debenture holders, for example, could have negotiated a provision which uh, proscribed this transaction that's before the court. And when it comes to a plan of arrangement involving shareholders, you'd expect there to be some off-ramp through a dissent process for most shareholders. If they don't like a transaction, but they're going to get swept up by it. Does that factor into the analysis as well? 
courts will consider. Um, now, the, the dissent rights in most cases are not required. You know, they're offered as another indication of fairness. And as you say, you can say to the court, and we often raise that at the interim stage too, to say, you know, look, the, the shareholders not only get the disclosure and the circular, uh, they not only get to vote, but they also get a right to dissent. And then for those who don't know what that means is that when you dissent, you can sue for what's called the fair value of your share. So if you think, for example, that the company is worth more than it's being sold for, you can sue for fair value. So Steve, we know you've worked on a number of plan of arrangement transactions. Are there any anecdotes you can give us or stories you can tell uh, from plans of arrangement where you faced opposition trying to get it across the finish line? Um, it, they're very rarely opposed. Um, and when they do, they make the news. So for example, I was involved in one years ago called Petro-Kazakhstan. Uh, but that was a wonky one. It involved arbitrations in Sweden and all kinds of, you know, Toronto Council flying in and pressing Alberta judges. Um, more Not often, that. yes, <laughs> more often the anecdotally I'd say is that, and we're going to come to this, is that um, what used to be a very kind of um, routine application. Um, the judges are getting more interested now when they're hearing about cases like um, Interrail, which will come to, I mean, literally in the early days, we would go into, I'm not going to name the judges, we would go into private chambers and the judge I have in mind would hold his pen over the order and say, Steve, is there anything unusual about this one? And I would say no, and he'd sign. But you knew damn well that if there was something unusual about it, he would never do that for you again. But today the judges are much more formal and careful about that. And so what are the warning signs, if any, that you're going to see a bit more friction uh, getting towards completion on one of these plans of arrangement? Well, generally, in my experience, the companies, you know, uh, th th these transactions follow um, an intensive kind of process in which they've they've looked at a lot of alternatives. And they've, if they have a substantial shareholder, for example, they've spoken to that shareholder and they'll get a sense of whether they're going to support. If they've got, you know, a troublemaker, quotation marks, shareholder, they're going to know that there may be some trouble down the road. Um, so generally, when they come to this, they have a good sense of whether it's going to be opposed or not. So Steve, you mentioned that courts are taking a little bit more interest than perhaps they historically have in plans of arrangement. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and in particular how that might relate to fairness opinions? Sure. Um, recently, and by that I mean in the last six, seven, eight years, um, there have been some uh, contested arrangements, plans of arrangement, proposed plans of arrangement um, in which the um, the, uh, the contesting party has shine, shone a light on the fairness opinion, alleging that it's not an indication of fairness and should not be given any weight because of um, either its uh, failure to disclose the uh, methodology of the advisors or the way the advisors have been compensated. And um, if the decisions flowing from these cases, which we'll talk about, um, ha have not been entirely consistent, and I think you know, when you appear to uh, uh, just to seek approval arrangement, you have to tell the court about these decisions and it makes them more interested in the fairness opinion and, and its relevance in, in, in the case. So I take it one of those decisions is the Champion Iron Mines decision? Yes. Yeah, so in that case, um, in, in Ontario, um, Justice Brown uh, was asked to approve a plan of arrangement where an Australian company acquired Champion Iron Mines through a, a share exchange um, and 
bear in mind here that the, and the, at the end of the day, the court approved the arrangement and found it fair, but Justice Brown um, refused to give any consideration to the fairness opinion. Um, he did not like the pro forma uh, form of the fairness opinion. Um, and he did not like the fact that, you know, his, I think these are his words, the number crunching was not disclosed. Um, and he basically applied the litigation standard of uh, introducing expert evidence and contested litigation to um, the case at hand. And I, I think, you know, that's where there was a cross current and, and that can lead to some confusion. Yes, so, so Justice Brown in Champion Iron Mines approved the arrangement and then went on to make some some comments on the use of common form fairness opinions as evidence in court proceedings. As you mentioned, Steve, Justice Brown approached the opinion as if it were expert evidence. And I think he said something like it was devoid of analysis, cookie cutter, and did not meet the admissibility criteria. So he disregarded it. I mean, that that's pretty significant, isn't it? If standard practice is to have short form fairness opinions, and then suddenly the court says, actually, they may have to meet the qualification criteria of an expert opinion. I mean, that's a huge leap. So what was the reaction to that amongst practitioners? Well, where the confusion lies, and I think the way to get rid of the confusion is to understand it in this sense. Um, in a non-contested plan of arrangement, in my view, the fairness opinion is evidence of part of the process of the board of directors. It's not introduced as expert evidence in contested litigation and doesn't have to meet the test for admission of such evidence because of that. Um, it's there to show the shareholders the, the board process, and it's there to show the court the, that the board had concluded that, included that in part of its process. But things change dramatically when a party opposes an arrangement, and especially where they challenge the fairness opinion, because then you're in contested litigation. And you can't just refer to the pro forma opinion and ask the judge to, after the fact, accept that as expert evidence. The rules of evidence in Canada require that experts be qualified and that they, they explain the uh, nature of the analysis that leads to their opinion. So if an arrangement is opposed, you have to look at your fairness opinion very differently. So I had the, the pleasure of being at junior counsel to the target on champion iron mines, trying to get that one approved. And I remember in court, we were going through the process and, and we we're in open court and explaining you know, the, the substance of the transaction and the different pieces of, of the evidence as you would in any other case of what you have in the record and the different indicia supporting fairness. And I remember Justice Brown saying to lead counsel who was making those submissions, you know, hold on, I'm, I'm not quite finished with you yet on what was an unopposed plan of arrangement. And then he went into this discussion of concerns about, uh, about the fairness opinion before writing reasons that, that explain just what you said, Steve. Um, and so I wonder whether in that case, you know, because it was an unopposed plan of arrangement, it was an opportunity to approve the transaction, but make this commentary for the practice so that people can consider it, knowing that that opposed plan of, plan of arrangement where it might be a more relevant issue could come up down the road. I fully expect that Justice Brown is trying to be helpful and give guidance to the the the, the practitioners. Um, it's just I think that um, if anybody goes in so far as to uh, refuse admission of a fairness opinion because it doesn't meet the expert rules and a non-contested arrangement, in my view, that's going too far. And didn't the same Ontario court a few months later just pull back from that position? I think in the Bear Lake case. 
Yeah, so there was Bear Lake, another Ontario case, uh, Justice Wilton Siegel. Um, he considered an arrangement in respect of a mineral exploration company. Um, and he had no qualms uh, in, in continuing with the standard form fairness opinions, you know, commonly used and, and recognized their use as one indicia of the execution of a board's uh, fiduciary duties. And then there was another case, uh, Justice Frank Newbold, um, who I used to work with eons ago, by the way, um, in Royal, Royal Host said the same thing in, in, in different words, you know, the, the, the saying that the use of fairness opinions in an unopposed arrangement like that was commercial. Yeah, I think he said the purpose of fairness opinions is commercial, you know, they're considered by boards and shareholders in a commercial context. And so they're not like an expert report. Moving on from that, another significant case is the interoil decision. Can you tell us a bit about that decision? Well, interoil was a 2016 decision of the Yukon Court of Appeal. And in fact, there were a series of decisions until it was ultimately approved. And it concerned um, the proposed acquisition of Interoil by ExxonMobil. Interoil's main asset was a yet to be in development gas field in a remote location in Papua New Guinea. So needless to say, it was hard to value. It was hard to value because it was not producing and they didn't know when it would start producing and they didn't know how the production would go. So, you know, obviously in that case, a board has a very difficult time executing its business judgment rule on, you know, are we, are we selling this now for a great price? Or are we giving it away uh, for a steal? The transaction involved a so-called contingent resource payment on, on what the field would later contain uh, or produce. And in that case, in fact, Interoil first accepted an offer from another party who was outbid by Exxon, which in my view is fantastic evidence of a vibrant process where you have the ability for competing bidders to come in and one who actually does. Now, 80% of the shareholders actually voted to approve the transaction. And in my experience, you know, that's a number, you know, you'd love to go into 90, but 80 is a solid number. Anything over 75, I think I'd be very confident with. But despite that, the Yukon Court of Appeal found that deficiencies in the fairness opinion uh, fatally undermined the entire transaction and, and denied approval of it. Mm-hmm. So what kind of deficiencies? Well, they were concerned about the fairness opinion having or lacking um, any specific analysis of this contingent resource payment. And they were concerned about disclosure generally and the compensation. And they were also concerned, uh, they don't get into too much detail about whether the um, CEO had a conflict about whether he would personally benefit from the transaction. I think ultimately they were worried that the shareholders were not, despite overwhelmingly voting in favor that they had not been properly informed. It's the kind of problem that goes to the root of the whole proposal, right? Because it affects the disclosure going out to shareholders. And so their decision-making on whether to approve the transaction or not. And that affects that 75, 80% number that that you're talking about as the, as the primary indicator of fairness. Right. So one of the, the upshots of the decision was that the company had to go and get a so-called long form opinion from an independent advisor which provided a detailed analysis as to how the, um, the transaction was closed. But in terms of context, I think, you know, this case, you know, I wasn't counsel, but from reading the pleadings, which I've done in the affidavits and the decisions, it looks like the applicant um, who was met with all kinds of responding evidence and arguments to challenge the transaction, tried to proceed 
without directly responding to that and simply relying on the original fairness opinion. So this is where the issue transforms of one from evidence of execution of board duty to you know, contest the litigation. And th therefore, for the court, there was a big imbalance of evidence in favor of the party challenging the transaction, which was ultimately corrected. So Steve, earlier on, I asked you about sort of what you meant when you referred to a short form opinion. I mean, is there an off-ramp in a situation like this where you're met with opposition in a plan of arrangement process that maybe a thought was going to be relatively straightforward to supplement the material that you have in support of the transaction to make it clear to a court that you've got something more than just that bald opinion? My view is how you should approach it is I wouldn't even use the word supplement. I would say that, you know, you're starting almost from scratch. You have to look at the issues raised by the responding parties. You have to look at their evidence and you have to respond to that like they had just initiated a lawsuit. So if they come at you with investment bankers talking about you know, value or and or pro process, you need to respond. And if your original fairness opinion came from someone who was on a contingency fee, probably need to go and find someone else who can give a responding evidence on an independent basis to satisfy the other rules of expert evidence. With all the backup that you'd expect to go along with a proper expert report and analysis. Absolutely. Uh, in a high stakes, you know, where it's where it's bet the company kind of litigation, you have to you have to respond accordingly. You can't you can't treat this uh, lightly. So if the plan of arrangement is opposed, i.e., the shareholders are saying it's not fair, and here's our financial analysis to prove it, your fairness opinion needs to it, it sounds like at the very least have sufficient detail to defeat the opposition's opinion. How much should financial advisors, investment banks, the ones that are giving the opinions, how much should they be concerned about having to disclose their proprietary valuation models as part of this contested litigation? I guess they obviously, to the extent that there are proprietary models, things like that, they should be um, very concerned, although it rarely comes up. I am currently involved, for example, in some dissent proceedings where the dissenters are seeking all of the analysis internal to the financial advisors. They hired their own counsel and they fought that heavily. And ultimately, there was a compromise where they disclosed some of their analysis. But, uh, you know, it's it's part of their their tradecraft and they don't want they don't want that out on the street. You know, whether there's merit to that, I don't know. Well, and coming back to the Bear Lake case that said you know, the purpose of a fairness opinion is commercial, it's not an expert report. If the shareholders aren't satisfied with the depth of analysis that's in there, presumably they can just vote against the deal. Yeah, and, and, and very rarely the um, financial advisors will be engaged to do a formal valuation. That's an onerous and expensive task. So, you know, there'll be reams and reams of analysis, spreadsheets and models that, that they've, presentations they've made to the board talking about alternatives, different perspectives on valuation. And, and, and I do agree that, you know, at a certain stage, this, you know, adding more to the circular is not going to help shareholders make their decision. So, Steve, when we were talking about Interoil, you made a comment about success fees. I gather until recently it was common for financial advisors giving a fairness opinion on a transaction to be paid a success fee based on the approval and completion of the transaction. Uh, how does that practice interact with what happened at Interoil and what's the issue? Well, again, the, the cross currents, it works like this. Um, in, as you know, Andrew, in litigation, you cannot put a, an expert on the stand and try and get her qualified 
if she's working on a contingency fee, it's, you know, the court will say, you're out. You could stop talking, leave the room. You're not qualified. You have to be independent. And the contingency fee does not uh, support that. And in contrast with that, the work of financial advisors in trying to help a company find a transaction that maximizes value, it's common for contingency fees or, or success fees to be used for a number of reasons. One might be, for example, that the, the company is you know, a mid-cap or a small-cap company, and they simply can't afford a speculative possible venture paying financial advisors a fixed fee, which would be enormous in late if, it's a, if it's an intensive job versus a success fee. The other thing you have to consider is, as I, I mentioned earlier, is that the financial advisors are probably doing all kinds of other work, including trying to find the optimal purchaser, for example, of the company. So in that sense, I think of them like a real estate agent. And, and I, you know, if I'm selling my house, I want my agent to find the buyer who's willing to pay the most. And I'm obviously willing to share a piece of that accordingly. And I, so I don't have a problem with that at all. It's just when you get into the opposition and you want to rely on someone's advice as a quasi-expert or expert, if it's contingent payment, then that makes courts more nervous. You have to imagine that it's on balance, it could be a good thing to make sure that your financial advisor has skin in the game exactly. uh, and recognizing what the risks are of having that skin in the game you know, of course, they're still going to be motivated to do the work and get the job done right and not merely just rubber stamp a fairness opinion on a on a transaction just to get it over the finish line. Right, exactly. But how does that interface with InterOil and takeaways from InterOil? Well, I think InterOil, the, again, because there was such a strong opposition to the transaction, which at first instance was not strongly met, talking about the compensation, uh, raising questions about the CEO's possible conflicts. I think, you know, that there was one big pile of concerns that led to the court to say, no, you're going to have to go start from scratch. So going forward, I mean, it's not necessarily cut and dry that you can't have a success fee aspect to a fairness opinion. But if you can avoid it, that's certainly going to increase your chances of avoiding judicial scrutiny. Is that the takeaway? I just think it's it's a factor that should be addressed depending on the circumstances. And you know, anecdotally, I could tell you that since this series of case law we've talked about, it's it's very common for judges to say, Mr. Lytle, how are these financial advisors being paid? And and if it is a contingency fee, we'll be frank about it and we'll explain why and how that's still commonly done. But they want to know. So on that note, Steve, taking all this stuff together, I mean, what's the what's the biggest lesson that a listener should should take away from where the case law and, and everything stands on fairness opinions going into 2022? Well, what comes to mind is, and we alluded to this earlier, when a company, if you're seeking, for example, by way of a proposed arrangement, you know, you should do your homework in canvassing stakeholders to the greatest extent you can to find out whether there are going to be people who are going to fight you. And if you expect a fight, you probably want to anticipatorily uh, beef up your disclosure and think about whether you should get independent opinions and things like that. Th you know, think about the compensation of the investment bankers in the company's circumstances. And if it is sensible that they be paid a contingency fee, you know, be ready to explain why. Because in my view, in some cases, that would advance the best interests of the company. And to me, as a litigator, you know, the big lesson is, and we've talked about this already, if someone, you know, serves material saying we're opposing the transaction, then it's battle stations. And don't rely on what you've done to date and, and meet that case head on. Thanks, Steve. Happy to chat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, 
or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.